Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food. From politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Hello, I'm Caroline Kenyon and I'm absolutely delighted to be presenting the very first edition of Bread and Butter, which is my new strand on Food FM. Essentially, it's an opportunity for me to talk to all sorts of wonderful people about things that I'm interested in. How lucky am I? Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Orlande Murrin, known to many as a distinguished food writer and also president of the Guild of Food Writers, who has just published a wonderful book called Two's Company, about cooking for two people. Our other guest comes from the other end of the cooking spectrum, Rachel Green, known as Lincolnshire Celebrity Chef, but known nationally uh, from her many TV appearances and as a really distinguished outside caterer. And that's where Rachel comes into this because Rachel has cooked for up to 800 people. Rachel, I think I'm right in saying that you did tea for the queen for 800, but quite often, 300 people at a time, and I think that is remarkable. So I think we're going to have a really fascinating conversation today about cooking for different numbers. So Orlando, at one end of the spectrum, cooking for two, and Rachel cooking for anything from 300 to 800. So welcome to you both. Hello, Caroline. Great to be here. And can I just say up front that even when you say those numbers, it turns me to jelly. Rachel, I don't know how you can get up in the morning with the prospect of 800 people expecting yeah. you to serve them tea. I'm all admiration. Oh, that's really kind of you. Sometimes I, even now, and I've been doing it sort of 35, 40 years, I always have um, same day, you know, the nerves on the day I'm actually doing the event. It's like, I, I think it's like going on stage. I, I, it's very nerve wracking, but I also like that feeling of slight panic. It sort of drives me on to do do the best I possibly can. And also, I'm often catering for someone's really special day, like a wedding. So you only get one sort of shot at it, really. You only get one shot at it. Absolutely. You can never get that day back again, can you? you I just wondered, can't. for our listeners, I'd love to hear both of your your food journeys. Tell us about the little Orlando and the little Rachel and how you first came to be involved with and interested in food. Orlando, why don't you go first? I always liked cooking at my mother's side. Um, I was very lucky to have a mother who was a very good cook. Most 
most cookery writers say that they learned from their mother um, and there's no nothing like it if you can do that and then I became a normal kind of household journalist I wrote about gardens and houses and um, celebrities and things like that and musicians um, and uh, I was enjoying doing that for magazines in the golden age of magazines in the 1990s and one day I was serving lunch to some friends because I was very so had a huge social life at that point so it was a Sunday lunch and some friends said oh you need to enter this new cookery show I said what's it called and they said MasterChef I said well I've never heard of it I said um, but I did enter and I it, when I actually went on the show I had never seen it I was obviously a bit poorly prepared and naive however I got through to the semi-finals this was in 1992 um, I absolutely loved it it was a very different show for it then from now it was a very friendly show which was a, a kind of celebration of British dinner parties and British home cooking nothing to do with professional cooking at all and so after that my my magazine journalistic career went into food and I became editor of BBC Good Food I got um, a daily recipe column in the Daily Express which I did for for five years um, I started to write cookbooks and uh, that went on marvelously and I had the most marvelous career uh, till 2004 when I took off to open a hotel in France a gastronomic B&B which was again a great success although personally very very demanding and difficult um, and it was kind of wiped me out personally I was a, a bit of a, a wreck after that then madly we came back to England and did, did another one for three years and sold that and um, that was in I think 2013 and I said at that point I'm not entertaining anymore I'm not cooking for guests anymore. Um, we don't have a spare room. We don't have a dining room table where I live now. And I've more or less stuck to that with very uh, rare exceptions. So I was, uh, you could say I was scarred by catering experiences, Rachel. Um, do you know <laughs> what? So... I so get that, Orlando. I so get that. <laughs> so here I am now living in total rapture and bliss. <laughs> Two of us. I cook dinner every night for us. I look forward to it all day. I shop for it. I think about it. I plan it. I follow a recipe or I don't. And that, and that... Uh, has driven the need, the urgent need to write a cookbook for two people out of frustration, really, about the resources that are available for the two-person household. So that's my story in a nutshell. Oh, that's a wonderful story, Orlando. Thank you for sharing. It's really touching, but you can see there's a very, very sort of clear trajectory, and you know some of it's been painful and difficult. It, it was. I was actually scarred when I first came out of the the hotel industry. I actually couldn't cook anything for 18 months. I just had a, um, a microwave. I just heated up food. I couldn't actually cook. I, but I was really damaged by it and personally damaged by it. And I became a very unpleasant, odd person under the strain. So that's, again, Rachel, why I admire you so much, because you've obviously got more more strength of personality or, or uh, you, you can you can run your life in a better way. I never got the hang of it. I have to say that I, I did never skip a meal or never serve, I hope, a bad meal. But the personal strain was, was awful and it just mm -hmm. rolled on until at the end of the season I was on my knees. And of course, I was I was very, um, very difficult to live with. I wouldn't want to live yes. with myself as a, as a rest Tour, I tell you. Oh, I Whereas think, I Rachel, think I'm sure you're lovely to live with. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. I can be very difficult, Orlando. I, I assure you, I can be. I think. Um, well, I basically, I'm a farmer. My farmer's daughter. 
Um, my family have farmed for over 400 years in Lincolnshire. So food was sort of very big part of my life. You know, the growing of it. We had a huge vegetable garden. I'm a passionate gardener. That's sort of, uh, again, the other end of my relaxing spectrum, really. But I, I remember as a little girl being very involved in um, the production of meat and vegetables and obviously cereals. We had a very, we grew a lot of peas for freezing. So all the time, my whole life was involved. In, my mother's an absolutely fantastic baker and a really good cook. Both my grandparents were as well, my, my grandmothers, they were amazing. So I remember just the whole thing, my whole childhood was sort of around food. So I, I don't think I've ever known anything else. And I went to Catering College. Uh, it, there was a very big sort of debate on whether I wanted to be an actress or a chef. And actually, quite frankly, I don't think there's a lot of difference. We're, we're all drama queens, really. Um, and it's absolutely true. Um, so I went to Catering College and I decided that I really wanted to work for myself. So I worked for myself in Edinburgh as an outside caterer did really well for a while and then decided after a rather difficult a relationship with a boyfriend that I was going to go and move to London. I thought I need to experience the high life in London. So I moved to London and actually I got a job with a property developer and it was sort of in the 80s and it was a wild time for catering because we did these huge property parties. We had uh, massive huge, so basically catering for large corporate events and I would say that's probably where I really sharpened my teeth on the on the catering world, really, because I was actually, sounds awful, I, I had a, a, a huge budget. I, I had lots and lots of fun doing it. We, we did sort of great big parties for things like the rugby matches, for all these buildings that needed to be let. So we'd have lots of estate agents in looking at the buildings, doing this amazing food. We used to, we, we, I just went all over London doing this. My boss at the time was in, very involved with the Prince's Trust, um, Prince Charles's Trust, and I then got to do events at St James's Palace. I remember standing there with all this amazing, amazing artwork um, in the back room preparing canapes. Um, and then I got to do an, a big event for the Queen and for Prince Philip, all through that, all through this connection with, 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 my, um, with my boss. So I just, I was very, very lucky. Um, and the, and the, in the 80s, it was very much the high life. Money was no object. So I really had a fantastic experience. I then decided when I had my son to move back to Lincolnshire. And I also was scarred because we actually opened a restaurant in a lovely house up in Lincolnshire. And I my, it cost me my marriage, really. I, it, it was a really, really hard experience. So we sold that and I then decided to go into sort of catering like weddings and again some corporate stuff but I, I didn't ever want to run a restaurant again. I hated being shut in one place. For me I love the flexibility of going out to different places, meeting different people, setting up an event, clearing it down and then moving on to the next thing. So that's really where I am today. A caterer in Lincolnshire but I also do, do lots of other things. I, ha I have more than one egg in my basket. I, I, do some, I do food photography, I do recipe development for clients and I'm an ambassador for various food brands, particularly in the agricultural sector. So I also now have started to have people back into my house five years ago and we do supper clubs here, but it's very much on my terms. And I have the odd person staying here, so we do a little bit of Airbnb as well. And I have a lovely log here at the top of my garden, so we do a lot of outside events, particularly feasting with, with fire, 
so we do a lot on open fires and in lockdown that was really good obviously having the space for uh six people to be able to come and eat when when we were allowed so that helped a little bit but yeah i'm still there i'm doing a wedding this weekend for, for 300 people <laughs> And I'm still at it. So I know it's a long story, but that's me. It's a wonderful story, Rachel. Thank you for sharing. I mean, there are, so, there are lots of threads that actually, you know, tie the two of you together. And I think, I think the, the one that stands out for me is love. I think that Orlando, your, the cooking for two is, is about love. And, and I can, I can empathise with that because um, I've spent a lot of time over the last year and a half of, of COVID um, away in London, caring for my mother and, and, being um, apart from my husband and we love my husband and I love cooking for each other so when I've been home the act of cooking for him or him cooking for me has been a celebration of our being back together again and Rachel I I mean you know Rachel and I have known each other for many years but Rachel for you I think that your cooking and your food is about love I think it very much is um for me it's the attention to detail when I'm doing an event I want it to be I just want it to be memorable I want it to be done. I do do it with love. And I'm the one just before we're going to the event that's in my polytunnel collecting the vine leaves because I know that the cheese is going to look so much better on the fresh vine leaves. And they're going, come on, Rachel, get in the car, get in. The, we, we need to take the trailer there. And I'm picking the edible flowers and I and I grow a lot of things. I, I add a lot of things to 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 my events that I don't need to and that people haven't particularly paid for but it's what I want to do. It's, it's so important to me. And Rachel, you, you're very attached to your land, aren't you? It's a bit like Gone with the Wind. You, you, <laughs> and, your, you, you and your adored Lincolnshire. It must be a wonderful thing to be rooted in a place like you are. It is really because everybody sort of knows me. They know my family and they have been really, people have been incredibly supportive to me through lockdown because obviously that's been a very difficult time. And I've sort of rekindled a lots of friendships through that. Uh, we've had a lot of people that have helped me cook actually through lockdown. That and we've gathered this really amazing local team of, of women around us. I, and I haven't intentionally not had any men in my kitchen, but we have this really incredible friendship that goes on here uh, within the kitchen. And it's all people and they come and go as they feel they need to. There's no real, there's no, that's how I feel as a person. I'm quite a maverick and I'm quite a free person. I never conform, I haven't really ever conformed in my life. I think that went down very badly with my mother. I think she'd like me to have married a, a local farmer, but it never happened. Um, and I, I, I like the people that work for me to be able to feel free to come and work when they can for as long as they can. So we're, we're, it's quite fluid here. Everything gets done. But every, we want everyone to be happy. Traditionally, women in kitchens have been a much more healthy, joyous <laughs> event than men in kitchens. And I remember when I was editing Good Food, the River Cafe came into being. And the most remarkable thing about it, well, everything was remarkable about it, but Absolutely. one of the most remar remarkable things about it was the fact that it was women running the kitchen with a completely different spirit. And they had a different attitude towards themselves and their chefs and a different attitude towards the food. They were not manipulating and manoeuvring the food 
in a mechanical way into shapes and forms. They were not, uh, they were not engineering things. They were putting things on the plate and letting them look the way they looked, and they had their own natural beauty. And from the River Cafe, the kitchen started to emerge this generation of enlightened cooks, chefs, who we all hoped would roll over London and and take out the kind of frightening old-fashioned chefs, dare I name, you know, people like um, uh, Marco Pierre White, the people, the, the, the people who had a reputation for being fierce and violent. And that did happen. You know, Jamie Oliver was one of them, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall was another, and there have been myriad, and they come out and they're kind, good people who Lovely. believe that they're working with human beings, not with automatons. Mm -hmm. And they're not out to, you know, murder the person on the station next to them, which used to happen in a lot of kitchens, almost literally, I think. I do still find, though, Orlando, there's very much what I call a little boys club, and that I'm definitely not part of that sometimes when I go to events or, you know, big food festivals. It's all this very sort of, yeah, right, you know. I don't know whether it's ageist, because I am obviously on the older end of it um but yeah sometimes i think they look and they think well you know that hasn't got this in it or you know she's not doing 25 million things with it what i like to do with my ingredients is i like it to speak for itself so it just can be a simple i mean at the weekend i did a really lovely i was given by a chap who sells them this incredible pink hispy cabbage so red hispy cabbage and i just i just did it on stage and everybody was saying how lovely it was. I just charred it in a pan and finished it off in the oven with some great oil and some Dorset blue cheese and uh, some of this lovely uh, Dorset andulia. And it, it, it was just three simple ingredients, but it just was fantastic. And I think sometimes, particularly in this day and age, and I'm not quite sure how people can actually work out the sort of numbers of making money, sometimes 25 different items on a plate. And I, I sometimes struggle with that. Rachel, I'm so with you on this. This is one of my bugbears and I do rave about it whenever anyone lets me. And it's the proliferation of flavours in recipes. Um, so, so you're talking about what's actually on the plate. I'm talking about what's on the page. And yeah. if there are food writers listening, there might be. So I have to be I'll try and be polite. But everything nowadays seems to be this with this with this with this with this. And there's too much happening there. And I think I know why it happens. But I cannot. Nothing is going to induce me to make you know the tuna with the grapes with the sumac aioli, with all this this stuff kind of fighting against each other. And the reason I think it happens is that there's a, an enormous need for novelty. You know, writers have to come up with something new and different and original that hasn't been done before. And the, the same as chefs do. Mm. And of course, a lot of the great combinations have already been discovered. Um, so I suppose, you know, people say, well, what can I do with macaroni cheese apart from put um, nectarines in it and, you know, <laughs> half, and uh, Sri, uh, words that I can't pronounce. I can't say the words Sri Racha. It's a lovely ingredient. You no, know, I the, can't. Funny the, enough, the, I the can't. The paste. Um, uh, uh, so that, you know, you have to put in all these other things in it in order to produce a publishable recipe. But you see, I don't believe that's true. I think you should be working with things that are actually nice to eat. Start with the thing that's lovely to eat, then find the best possible way to make it. And if necessary, take 
something out of it rather than add something in. But um, I'm, you, you and I may be lone voices in wanting things to be a, a bit simpler and for the ingredients simply to speak for themselves. I don't like, you know, weird ingredients together. I, I'm actually quite troubled often by, um, I'm troubled quite often by f meat with fruit, which seems to be, it seems to be impossible for a recipe writer to put a piece of meat on the plate without some piece of fruit on it, which is nice for a change, but it doesn't always work, does it? Yeah. I have to say, I'm a bit of a fan of, of meat and fruit. I do. I oh, love, you know, tagine, you know, with the prunes. That's, and all the oh, that's oh, wonderful. I, I agree. But it, but it's t it's kind of random meat with fruit, which oh, I'm talking about. No, I understand. <laughs> I do understand. I think or it's, fish, I with, love... fish with fruit. Fish with oh, fruit. No. Um, that's it's a bit wobbly fish with fruit, really. Well, I, I mean, well, mackerel and gooseberry is quite traditional, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just going to rein you two in because I think I just, I'm just loving listening to you talk. And I know that you could talk for hours but I do want to just sort of take us back to the origins of your book Orlando and just about this whole idea of cooking for two and then I just want Rachel to come in with her take because one of the things that I, so I, I mentioned that, that I've known Rachel for many years I Rachel I respect you hugely for so many things but one of the things that I respect you for is that you've got a chemistry A level yes and I, I <laughs> for somebody who had to be coached with a chemistry O level I absolutely tip my hat to you and I know that the chemistry of cooking is so different so Orlando, just take us back to the origins of the book, why you felt it was really important to do it, and then let's just start sort of teasing out some of the threads there. So I'd love to hear the, what you both think. This book was driven by an urgent determination that it was needed and out of frustration. Now, I don't want to make this a neg negative podcast because both Rachel and I did have like dark moments in our past. So this isn't, I, I don't want to make this um, sound cross and ranty and ravey, but for decades now, the most... Uh, that most households in Britain are two-person households. After that, the most common household is three-person household. After that, it is a single-person household. This has been the same for 20, 30 years, so it's nothing new. And yet, every recipe you turn to is for four, six or eight. And if you are a two-person household, you have some choices here. Uh, of course, you don't have to follow a recipe, you can make it up. But it's nice to follow a recipe because you get, you know, a new idea. It might be, so it's fun to let someone else tell you what to do. So you either halve it and halfway through you forget you're halving it. And so you add all the thingamy and then you have to go back and try and convert the thing. Or you start all over again and throw it away, which is a disaster. Or you make the whole lot and you have... Uh, leftovers. Now, there's nothing wrong with leftovers. Leftovers can be delicious. Leftovers in their place are very convenient. I mean, very useful. A half a roast chicken is an extremely useful thing. Plenty of things that are great to have as leftovers. But day after day after day to be eating up last night's dinner is just depressing. And the other thing that I found depressing was that when I was trying recipes and halving them, and in fact trying uh, recipes and even with leftovers, finding myself with a lot of leftover half packets, which are very annoying. Now, I live in the city, so I, I, I shop mainly at supermarkets, and the, the, you, so you haven't got much choice about what you can buy. Um, I think it's much better for a two-person household to shop in markets and greengrocers when you can, if you can get to one, because you can buy just what you need to avoid this problem. But this waste is the waste and the depression of always having to be cooking from recipes for four was what drove me to think, 
come on, let's do a proper book and show what's possible for two. And once I started doing it, I found that all sorts of things were possible, easier, quicker, shorter cooking times, shorter prep times. Uh, things that are a great nuisance for large numbers became completely doable for two people. But the, the thing that I most like about two people and the kind of lesson of the book, if I can call it a lesson, is what makes cooking for two such a total joy is if you can arrange to do it without a timetable so that it's ready when it's ready, that there's no pressure of you know family needing to eat because they've got to go to a swimming lesson or choir practice or because they're hungry no guests waiting which i know rachel has guests waiting every minute of every day for her for her things so not to have that pressure makes the cooking an absolute pleasure and so i found a hundred recipes that were just a joy for the two-person household to cook which were great to eat um, and and in a sense revitalized me and made me love cooking again so it really is a celebration of everything that's possible and there's a lot of fun in the book i i do lots of playful things i make like i i did say to my editor well i want a joke on every page they're not really jokes but there's something i hope that is a little fizz of joy or fun on every page some something that that gives a little pleasure apart from the cooking i worked everything out quite carefully so the recipes look as if they're quite uh, specific and accurate and that's because when you're cooking with two you're you're dealing with smaller quantities and you haven't really got as much leeway as you've got when you're cooking for 800 you know a teaspoon of salt with if you're cooking for two will ruin the dish if it shouldn't be there whereas with 800 it will be undetectable I think I could say Rachel so that's why why I've, I had to tabulate the recipes with quite a lot of care so I, I suggest that people measure quite carefully I've also done the timings with great care um, a couple of kind of breakthroughs that I had when I was testing the book is that I have I'm encouraging people to not to preheat preheat their ovens ever it's a waste of heat it's it's throwing heat into the environment which doesn't yeah. need to be there and you can cook anything including Yorkshire puddings from a cold stove oven including bread um, the best sourdough bakers all start from a cold oven so that's one of my lessons and I've said that in the, in the book that I don't preheat my oven if you are addicted to preheating your oven you can of course preheat it and then shorten the cooking time a bit but it's not necessary and the other the other theme that I have which only materialized while I was writing the book was that I had a bit of an enlightenment which is for, for 20 years I've been telling readers in magazines and books and newspapers to use large eggs because they're slightly cheaper than medium eggs for some reason probably to do with packaging and I met um, uh, Jane Howarth of the British Hen Welfare Trust who very rapidly persuaded me that large eggs are bad for the hens, bad for the farmers, bad for the consumers. Yeah. So I'm sorry everyone for my <laughs> mistake over the past 20 years and I now tell people to buy mixed weight or medium eggs yeah. and I, I'm quite sure Rachel you were there years before me and I can only apologise for this great mistake but I'm making up for it now and I spend yeah. half an hour a day writing to people urging them a to puff. put their medium eggs in their magazine and change all their websites which they're yeah gradually doing well i actually work for a huge egg producer up here they produce 18 million eggs a week so i know a reasonable amount about eggs actually and i'm really glad to hear you're doing that that's really positive 
I really care about it, and I, I, I just did. I, I inadvertently did wrong. No one told me till last year. I mean, they, they didn't come round, you know, and shake shake a stick at me. But I was a, I was at a Guild of Food Writers event, um, in which I learned this, and my my jaw fell to the floor because I realised how <laughs> wrong I'd been. So anyway, I just say to everyone, please use medium eggs, and really don't worry about it. You can use them practically every put a medium egg instead of a large egg it will very very rarely make any difference i just think with your book i think you're giving such a positive message that cooking for two people is really important and i think that's such a lovely thing to have done and i'm i can't wait for it to come out and, and get it i just oh I think thank you Rachel. such it's such a positive message and it's brilliant it's a, such a lovely way to cook the way i think of it is that you're driving a a tanker or a lorry or something <laughs> really really challenging and important and uh, you know potentially murderous on that on the road and i've got this little kind of roadster that i'm driving along which is all the good side of cooking with none of the responsibility or difficulty or pressure and mm. I, it's honest that I look forward to cooking every night and I'm sure I will as long as I've got someone to cook for. Of course, oh, I have someone very pleased wonderful. to cook for. <laughs> I have to say that I have really, really rekindled my, my passion for cooking over the last year and a half. I mean, I've always enjoyed it, but now I just, I'm completely in love with it. And it's, I feel so You're privileged that food is my work and my recreation. Well, I've, I've learned so much from you over the years, Rachel. I mean, Orlando, Rachel and I have uh, been at many, many uh, a, a cookery gig together and I've, I've learned from Rachel that a recipe is a starting point and an inspiration and how you can improvise. I learned to put my salads on platters rather than in bowls. I mean, lots of things I've learned from you, Rachel. But oh. I'd just love to hear from you about, because Orlando was really interesting about how he had, had to adapt recipes that were always for four to six and the change in chemistry. How, who taught you? How did you learn to cook for 300? Because I don't know of a recipe book that says, you know, take 15 chickens and 43 quarts of cream. Where does well, that come from? I think, we, you know, we always did large events at home. So, you know, if there was ever a sort of christening or whatever, we would do it and it would be done. So I'm, I suppose that's sort of where, where it sort of started. But it, it is absolute experience, Caroline. I have learnt along the way. I went to catering college. So, yes, there was lessons on how to double things up or how to do it for 50 or 100. And you'd, you'd have to work out the quantities. But we actually do do it quite uh, mathematically. So we will say, right, you know, for example, we're doing some lovely local tender stem broccoli this weekend. And we will say, from experience, right, we need about 100 grams of that. Particularly, then we need to add some more on to make sure there's enough in the bowls. I, I can't really even really sort of tell you, but it, it's just come from absolute experience. I, I, and I know, you know, that when I cook, I'm doing fillet of beef this weekend so we know that we need to cook about nine or i'm doing it in ounces here nine or ten ounces to get the right amount on the plate and be able to offer some extra it just it just comes with experience and but we do we do we do mathematically sort of work out for example that we need nine ounces times 300 people and then we add a little tiny bit more on just so that we're not absolutely shitty. I cannot stand it when I'm in the kitchen and I'm carving and I will be carving this weekend. I cannot stand the thought of being so on the wire that I'm panicking for the last 20 plates. I'm a generous caterer. 
I don't want to necessarily give people the ends. I want to trim, you know, I want to give everybody the best plate of food from the start of, of, of service to the end of service. And there is, for me, I just, I always have a little bit left over because I need that. Mm. I also always feed my staff. I know a lot of caterers might not do that, but they always have what everybody else is eating. So they'll have what's left. And I think that's really important because an army does not march well on an empty stomach. Just thinking about things like temperatures, Rach, because I mean, you know, you're, you're famous for doing the most exquisite, um, you know, beef fillet, but to get filleted beef pink in the middle every single time for 300 people when you're cooking in a field, how does that work? It's called holding your nerve. <laughs> so, so basically I will take it to a temperature that is probably undercooked i will let it sit and then i will blast i will so we we know that they're going to be sitting down we will blast that food in very hot ovens again and take it and it works like that i have somebody just doing that just managing the meat as it comes out so the meat's it's always really important for me obviously i buy the absolute best i can i've just spent a, a, a huge amount of money this weekend for for what has been meat that we have had ordered sort of three weeks you know so i'm i'm ordering stuff sort of three weeks in advance for for, for events to make sure that i don't just order it on a monday but i'm saying to nick my butcher who's been here all morning sorting out a whole load of more events just to say nick this is what we're going to want in three weeks time so he can absolutely get the best possible quality for me and he know he knows w what i want and i I think it's really important for me to work with the people. It's not about necessarily about the price. For me, it's about the person I'm dealing with because I know, he knows I can be tricky if I'm not getting the right thing. He knows it will come back his way if it's not right. But I have got that wonderful relationship with my suppliers. I, I have, for example, as I say, Nick, they all laugh in the kitchen. Has, has your boyfriend phoned you up? At, Nick calls me at half five, quarter to six in the morning to have a conversation about me. He called me this morning. He's my early morning call. Um, and we have that we have that relationship. Yeah, I can speak to him on a Sunday and he knows A, I'll look after him, but B, we just have that wonderful relationship and it and, and that is so important as a caterer, as a good caterer, to have the, the relationship with your suppliers. I I can phone up my the Tim Tim and Simon Jones who own Lincolnshire Poacher and say Tim, you've got to advise me. I need to know about this cheese or that cheese. What do you think? Right the way through to uh, Rob um, on Grimsby Docks, who is my supplier of fish. We have this lovely, lovely, easy relationship, and it's so important. It's on the menu for the weekend, and just talk us through what the implications are for preparing it. I'd love to hear. Well, we're having canapes this week. I'm actually uh, having canapes this weekend as the starter, because I always think that's a really nice way of people kind of tripping around and having a nice drink and so that's there's quite a lot of work involved in that there's a think about i can't quite remember but i think there's three cold and i think about six hot canapes so obviously there's an awful lot that's an awful lot of work for that amount of people uh, i love canapes known as the canapé queen up here love it love it so uh they will all go out on different plates nothing ever matches i'm not really a matchy type of person so we might have some lovely Victorian platters that were my grandmother's uh, with some of it going. We might have some slate, we might have some wood, we might have some vinyl. We, 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 we literally use any kind of surface to put canapes on. Um, and it's very mix and matchy, and I like that. Um, so that's been, we started on Monday catering. 
um, for this event and we, we don't do another event this week for this particular because it's a wedding and then we've got fillets of beef uh, with Bernays sauce uh, roasted shallots are lovely at the moment got some lovely local shallots uh, so confit is shallot with it a little bit of um, roasting juices over it a little bit of we've got some lovely Hampshire watercress to decorate it with and then we've got a lovely big garden salads and we will have in there some of my edible flowers. So we'll have corn flour, corn flowers in it, some chives, um, a lovely dressing just very simply with olive oil and some lovely, um, a lovely kind of French dressing. We will in there, we've got uh, some of my lettuce, some of my homegrown, but sort of different leaves. So it's just very simple. And we will put chive flowers in there as well, pull some of those in it. And we're doing tender stem broccoli and we're doing dauphinoise and we're doing ice we're doing ice bowls so yes we're doing brownies that's right we're doing plates of brownies with berries so a blondie and a brownie on great big platters on the table with berries and vine leaves and edible flowers and then we're doing my famous ice bowls with homemade vanilla bean ice cream in them that's it amazing amazing so we've got so 20 ice bowls we've made this week and they look amazing alando you would love them they're just it's all kind of lovely and natural. Uh, and... Do you have any vacancies? Can I come along? <laughs> well, I, I, very sadly, we are we are coming to the end of this really wonderful and fascinating conversation. I just wanted to round it off with to hear what uh, Orlando, what you're cooking tonight, and then I've got a little suggestion for you both. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Tonight is an extraordinary exception because my partner is cooking it tonight, um, and it's his signature dish, which is in the Intu's company. It's called Chicken Alsace, and it's his oh. Alsatian grandmother's uh, dish made with um, Alsatian wine and uh, uh, creme fraiche and some other oh. wonderful things. And his 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 grandmother was called Marie Antoinette because at that time Alsace was in just about in France and they wanted to call her the most French name they could think of so they called her Marie Antoinette so it's Marie Antoinette's chicken but I'm actually being cooked for and this only happens once every month or so so I've got the evening off and I will look forward to it oh, all, the, sounds, all the more. Sounds divine I wish I was nearer <laughs> sounds amazing so I, I love I, I, I love classical I, I love that sort of classical dish I think that's just and oh Oh, I could definitely have a glass of that lovely wine. It sounds gorgeous. Well, that is my suggestion to you both because it's been a wonderful, wonderful discussion and I know we could talk for hours, but I think that you should both make a pledge that you each cook for each other. <laughs> well, what a, good, what a great idea. I, would, I would love to do that. I would love to do that, Rachel. I would love well, to cook for you. So let's to, make, make that happen. You'll have I to think come, so. Come and, you'll have to come up and stay. We've got a lovely lovely cottage up here that we're we're doing airbnb at um my and, son and, and i so i will break my rule of no entertaining for you oh. <laughs> oh. how lovely I... well on that note i think sadly we need to come to a close thank you both so much for a really wonderful open touching and fascinating conversation thank, thank you, you caroline much. it's been wonderful thank you i just want to say alando your spice plum chutney recipe is divine oh thank you rachel that's so kind <laughs> <laughs> lovely thank you both thank you you're listening to bread and butter with caroline kenyon to find out more about food fm and our content go to foodfmradio.com <laughs>